Weather today in the ground. I love you so badly. I could... They're solid plastic, so don't settle for imitation. But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. <laughs> Evening, this is Marcy Fenner, and this is the best of an Alan Smithy podcast. You give us 80 minutes and we'll give you 80 minutes of words. They've been laughed at, they've been picked on, they've been put down. Will the odd now get even? From the 27th of March, 2011, a skull-neck-sized pairing of Jeff Canu's 1984 Revenge of the Nerds and Joe Roth's 1987 sequel, Revenge of the Nerds 2, Words in Paradise. Everybody clap your hand. We lambda, 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 and Omega Moon. And we've come here on stage tonight to do a show for you. We got a rockin' rhythm and a high-tech sound that'll make you move your body down to the ground. We got Poindexter on the violin, and Lewis and Gilbert will be joining in. We got Booga Presley on the mean guitar, and a rap by little old me, Lamar. We got Takashi beating on his gong. The boys and the moose are clapping along. Just when you thought you seen it all, along comes a lambda four foot tall. So won't you come on out here on the floor, so we can work our bodies like never before. Break. Everybody. Welcome to an Alan Smithy Podcast. My name is Matt, and I write at cinemachine.blogspot.com. And I'm Andrew, and I write at thestopbutton.com. And this is our podcast where we do uh, about an hour on one good movie and one bad movie. And this week, our good and bad movies are the first two entries in the Revenge of the Nerds uh, saga. The original came out in 1984. The sequel came out in 1987. And both of them had much the same cast, but they also had completely different uh, writers and directors on the two of them. And we're going to start with the first one. Uh, That's only logical. Um, Now, I kind of consider this like a comedy classic, and I've always really loved the movie like ever like they used to play it on comedy central a whole lot along with along with part two and that's how i saw both of them originally but i've always really loved the original and um 
it had been a while. You'd seen it before, but it had been a while, right? Would you say that it lives up to my hype as a comedy classic at all? Oh, I mean, when I say it's been a while, it has been 20 years. I'm trying to think about how old I am. It's been a long, long, long time. Um, I never saw it on cut. This was the first time I ever saw it on anything. But yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot cable. that gets. There's a lot that gets cut out for um, for for cable. Yeah, um, which of course we'll have to get to in some ways. But yeah, no, it. Um, obviously, because I'm a, a nitpicker, I had certain logic problems. <laughs> um, but no, it's. I mean, everything Curtis like- Armstrong says in the first one is <laughs> possibly. It, it makes sense why people still give him jobs today, playing the same role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. Well, that was my mother's old douchebag, but that's in Ohio. Oh, I just wish the lines in the second one had been as good, but oh, we'll get to that. But uh, mm-hmm. no, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, no, it's for an 80s comedy. It wasn't what I was expecting because having only seen it on TV, I was expecting the um, TNA sort of dick and fart joke. Porky's type thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, but no, I, I, I agree. It is a, I mean, it's, it's a it, significant I, comedy. It's true. Yeah. Let's say significant comedy. Cause I, I kind of hate myself for saying something as trite as comedy classic, but it's a classic to me. It's got a nostalgic place in my heart. And it definitely of course is influential in a lot of ways that unfortunately wasn't influential on its own sequel. But, mm-hmm. and I'm not even going to get to the, the stuff that, the really well, crazy yeah. shit I'm going to say later. <laughs> I guess the influential thing is that, you know, it's not exploitative, despite, like, the title is such a exploitation title, but then it's, like, they really take care, like, right from the first scene to develop, like, a sweet relationship between Anthony Edwards and Robert Carradine. Right. And just, and just show them as, like, you know, not... They're not like you and know. I think that's spazzes. They've you know they're like real people, and even and even you know all the nerd friends that you're introduced to in the movie. You know they're all kind of stereotypes, but they also have um, you know they're likable. They've got sweet sides, all of them. Yeah, and I think that one of the things about it is that the bad guys. Mm-hmm. It's sort of it's it's. Led by Jefferson Darcy from Married with Children, of course. And whatever else. Um, what did he – he's the the shark so he, tamer or yeah. something. He Every show he's on since then jump, gets canceled. I think jump, yeah, I think Jump the Shark <laughs> did like a – did an article that, that made the rounds on the internet a couple of years ago about how like, hey, have you ever noticed that whenever Ted McGinley shows up on a TV show, it gets canceled? <laughs> and um, – what was crazy for me was that it, you know, a year earlier, those guys would have been the heroes in a movie. Right. Which is kind of weird because, you know, 84, by 84, you're really into the 80s. You've sort of taken care of all your residual sequels from the 70s. Yeah. It's sort of like, I think the dif- like the difference between pre-Revenge of the Nerds comedies and post is that, like, pre-Revenge of the Nerds, the nerds were, like, the still the comic relief characters in in uh in you know stupid 
teen sex comedies and stuff. Um, but then, like, one year after this, you've got, like, Lucas with Corey Haim, where it's like, hey, the nerd is the main character, and, you know, his love interest is Winona Ryder, who we're going to sell as kind of a nerdy love interest. Yeah, it. Th- you sort of had the the shift in oh, the he also, 80s. <laughs> he also had uh, One Crazy Summer, which I think benefited a lot from – or not One Crazy Summer, I'm sorry, but uh, the first movie that Joan C- uh, John Cusack – Yeah, Better Off Dead was 83, Dead. right? It was 85. It was? After it was? Okay, so it was yeah. after this. Yeah, because, I mean, it's that whole thing that – what was it they said about something about Mary that – your hero in something about Mary that is presented as a stalker or whatever was your leading <laughs> man in the late eighties. And you had can't buy me love, which sucked, but I mean, it was, it <laughs> was, it was popular. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it was the nerd was the, and it, it, the revenge of the nerd sort of opened it, that up. Yeah. Like it made it okay. And, um, or Robert <laughs> and, Carradine, of course, never, <laughs> Well, Carradine does something which is arguably worse than anything like John Cusack ever did and say anything, which is he has sex with a girl because she thinks that he's somebody else. And yeah, she I loves, was trying to figure <laughs> out <loves> it. <laughs> how that – what you would term that. I mean – Yes, <sighs> a trick – I don't know, but – it's 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 preposterous, of course, because like she thinks that he's his he's her jock boyfriend. She doesn't even like realize that his body type is completely different. I, I'm pretty sure that he was doing things that she talk about talk yeah. about something. I talk about something you don't notice as a kid. <laughs> um, yeah, the whole implication of that is a little bit. Uh... <clears throat> and she loves it, which is like setting a horrible example for youth <laughs> watching this movie. Um, um, of course, but, but of course, Anthony Edwards has the healthy relationship with the girl from Real Genius. Um, oh which, right, which was which also came out in '85, yeah. right? And that was and that was another like Revenge of the Nerds inspired comedy for sure. Yeah, so it, there's, it like a, be, there's like a flood of nerd movies after this came out. I don't think there were any. What it was, was like it? as soon as, as soon as this came out and it was a hit, like Luke Lucas and Better Off Dead and and real genius like <laughs> their scripts all got greenlit probably because of this movie yeah i think the only um i'm trying to think the only sort of jock as hero movie after this from the 80s was what johnny be good all right starring anthony edwards ironically yeah so i am yeah and this one of course is revenge of the nerds does owe something to sort of the the porky's type of comedy Mm-hmm. Um, but not quite as much. I, just because, well, like we, we we talked about what got cut out for cable. Um, there's basically like you know some swearing, and that gets cut out, obviously. But the main things that get cut out are the boobs, and there's a lot of them. And there's like probably one of the most popular scenes from this movie is where they. Um, they're spying on the sorority girls because they installed some cameras uh, in their house after doing a panty raid, which is like another kind of action of questionable, questionable morals for a bunch of love, lovable underdogs. But um, it leads to the immortal line from Curtis Armstrong that we've got Bush as they see, um, you know, the girls, one of the girls below the uh, bathing suit area and – it's kind of more <laughs> it's it's more perverse the more I think about it because they're watching it with like Wormser who's like the 
the 12 year old or whatever who got into college because he's a genius and he's like the little kid of the group and he's watching full frontal female nudity with them. <laughs> yeah. Well, and of course there's the whole, <laughs> the so black like, guy in the movie who's this flamboyantly uh, gay black guy. Yeah. And it's really awful because I was reading be, about uh, the guy that he went on to be, he could, he was always typecast as gay. Right. He was too good as Lamar. Yeah. Everybody, and then, everybody thought he was gay for real. <laughs> and then I saw a picture of him today or whenever they did the, um, and it's impossible not it's impossible not to see him as gay, isn't He's it? He's got orange hair. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he had orange hair in the picture. <laughs> so I'm like, well, that would be your problem. Um, you've got orange hair in this picture. I'd seen, I'd seen pictures of him without orange hair, and I just couldn't like not think of him as the character. We'll get into – but he has this relationship with the kid that's – Oh, no, I'm not saying it's uh, – no, I'm not going there. What I'm saying is is that one of my problems with Revenge of the Nerds would be that the gay guy is still the joke. They still make yeah. fun of the gay guy. Even though there's this interesting thing about him being the only black guy at this school too. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, like there's well, they this did, – they did, they did shoot this at the University of Arizona, so come on. Well, that's true, but you know, I mean, it's it wasn't supposed to be at the University of they had, Arizona. They had, they had to they had to bus him in under. It was this. Nixon. I mean, that's obviously one of the realism issues that inexplicably this awesome uh, computer, the the most advanced computer science school in the country, is also this sort of you know football run. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they never. Yeah, they, he, they, they, yeah, they he, still make fun of him. Yeah, he's still a joke because he's the gay guy. Whereas, no, I. In fact, they don't do that at all. They, there's never an implication that it's just that he gets paired off with the twelve-year-old kid, as they, Anthony Edwards and Robert Carradine are already established. It's Curtis Armstrong, and the Japanese guy, because they're funniest together, and it's just Lamar and the kid <laughs> because it's funny when the kid is doing aerobics with him. That's all right <laughs> in the Superman underoos. Um, see, I feel like they, I feel like they got the de- they got like the nerd. Okay, but actually, on on that point, um, all I'll say is that it's true that they still make him the joke as the gay guy, but I also don't think they write him as black particularly. Like he probably wasn't even written as black in the script, the- but they don't. They don't make a point of that, even though he is the one black guy uh, the- in the whole school, seemingly. There's that one scene. Okay, so if you haven't seen Revenge of the Nerds, first of all, you have to go see it. It doesn't matter if you see it edited. It doesn't matter if you see a 15-minute version. You have to see Revenge of the Nerds because... You need to be culturally literate. Yeah, you have to be culturally literate. I mean, how you could not have seen Revenge of the Nerds and understand a single freaking joke on Family Guy is beyond me. You know? um, <laughs> they, reference it, that, they reference it constantly on Family Guy. Uh, yeah, weird. you know, like this is... Probably The Simpsons, too. Like, you can't... Well, maybe not The Simpsons, but anyway. Yeah. The joke is, and this is the reason I always loved Bernie Casey. He's in hilarious the, in this. Right. <laughs> it's like, because, you know, I, I have this friend, and he's a black guy, and he watched all the exploitation movies, and he liked Jim Brown. And mm-hmm. I had never seen Jim Brown in anything till I was, like, 15. But, mm-hmm. you know, growing up as a white kid, I saw... This, I saw Spies Like Us, so Bernie Casey was always sort of the face of that. So, okay, so in in Revenge of the Nerds, the way these characters get their um, 
fraternity and it's frightening to think that people went to college thinking this is how fraternities worked. And it's even more <laughs> frightening that it might be the way they work. I, I didn't go to school with a fraternity system. Um, they uh, uh, petitioned to become this fraternity and they're the only chapter and it's a, it's a black fraternity. Yeah. Bernie Casey's the the president of the fraternity. He's got a great name. It's what is it? UN. UN Dean. UN Jefferson. UN Jefferson, and they never explain what the UN's for, but it's an initial thing. So, I mean, it's just, right. it's awesome. <laughs> um, at the party, he comes to the party to supervise them long. Right. Party's not going well. They Robert Carradine puts on the black party. music, and Lamar yeah. goes and turns it off, and he gives Jim Brown a look. Not Jim Brown. He gives Bernie Casey a look like. They're white people. They don't understand. <laughs> and that is the only time in the entire thing. And I actually expected it to be totally different. Um, well, it's fun. Oh, how so? I expected him being black. It, 1984, I expected him being black to be an issue around campus. And we'll get to that later. But Well, we might as well mention it now. And if, you want to mention this it is now? Where, if this is where I think you're going with this, um, <laughs> there are at least like three jokes in the movie Probably all of which having to do with, yeah, the fact that the Lambda Lambda Lambdas are the black fraternity and the nerds sign up with them. And, you know, <laughs> Bernie Casey kind of, you know, has his heart won over by them taking revenge after the jocks crash their party that Bernie Casey is invited to, to, you know, see if they can be Lambda material because of the bylaws. See, I know this movie way too well. I don't all that stuff. Um but uh, what was my point? Oh, yeah, there's like three black stereotype jokes in the movie that are so dated and they would never do today. Um, and they I were, disagree I, I think, with that. I, I think, okay, maybe so, but I think they were probably dated even in 1984. Okay, first of all, yeah, like, you know, Robert Carradine puts on Swing Low Sweet Chariot, and that's absurd. Um, also, um, the nerd girl fraternity comes over and – Everybody's not dancing, and then Curtis Armstrong takes out the joints and cut to Thriller is playing, and everybody's having a good time. And the black joke isn't that they're listening to Thriller. The black joke is that Bernie Casey's uh, right-hand man like is toking, and he goes, oh, man, this is some good shit. And then he you know, looks to Bernie Casey like, whoops, sorry, I got a little too black there. I need to be more stoic in the face of Whitey. Um, oh, and then the other one, which yeah. is repeated. Oh. stolen in in revenge of the nerds too this joke but um the jocks have to stand down to let the nerds make their final speech because a bunch of lambdas from one of the black chapters show up inexplicably, inexplicably yeah because why would more why would lambdas from other schools be there that's then? my but, that's my christopher nolan moment but when they come out it's you know to, to accentuate the point the soundtrack is all like boom tick, bow, tick, you, tick, you, like you know black sound riff yeah. or something. But no, that is that is my Christopher Nolan moment because that's the same thing he did in The Dark Knight with Tommy T. Oh, yeah. Lister. It's the exact same thing. It's like, scary black guy. There you go. Yep. <laughs> so that's my first Christopher Nolan reference. There'll be one during the second part. Um, I can't wait to find out. Um, it's not well, as yeah. good as this one. <laughs> uh, but no. There's some, there's some dated humor. I mean, Takashi, for goodness sakes. I mean, well, it was... It was pretty. It was pretty popular to make fun of the Japanese in the eighties. Um, so it's not like it's out of place for an eighties comedy. But um, you know, and it's you know they've got like the nerdy 
Japanese exchange student in the Lambda fraternity, and you know, at least I mean, at least it makes sense. I mean, yeah, the Japanese get stereotyped as nerds, um, and you know, also in the movie's defense, Takashi is likable. He's not an idiot or anything. Okay, well, he's a little bit of an idiot. He walks around taking Polaroids of girls' hair pies, and he's obsessed with with the phrase hair pie after Booger explains it to him. And okay, but. You know, in 1984, you would have been acculturated to this, which I just made up a word, because 16 Candles came out two months earlier with Long Duck Dong, so... Oh, yeah. Long Duck Dong is a lot worse. Yeah, you're never going to beat this. But, I mean, that's the other thing is, Revenge of the Nerds feels kind of like a, um... Like, as if the impetus was a John Hughes movie that John Hughes never would have written. Because John Hughes never... He never promoted the nerd. The nerd was always his side character. He was sometimes nice to the nerd, but yeah. it was always about the – I mean look at 16 it, Candles. Yeah. Jake Ryan, yeah. the main guy, he turns <laughs> he, out to be great, right? Like he, even he though – stole my panties, yeah. But no, because I mean the whole you know, Animal House had the whole race thing that Revenge of the Nerds kind of borrows from. and Actually, Animal House is a lot more racist than this now that you – Bring it up. Yeah, <laughs> that, and that, I mean that, pr- I th- that primitive cultures cutaway joke always rubs me every time. Yeah, and um, well, the, where are the white women at? Wasn't that an Animal oh, House? I think that was Blazing Saddles. <laughs> that was Blazing Saddles, but there was the scene where the guy comes over and picks up the table and takes the white women from them when oh, they yeah. went to see him in the club. And I think that um, I was sort of expecting that from Animal or from Revenge of the Nerds, but I guess I hadn't realized how you know far Hollywood had come in six years that they didn't do that kind of thing anymore. Yeah. Um, but you, you mentioned the Michael Jackson thing and I don't want to come back to it later. And I want to forget the soundtrack in this, like yeah. not the score, but the soundtrack, it's yeah. phenomenal what they got. Not- yeah. It's this, it's this combi- it's this odd combination of, cause I owned this soundtrack CD at one time. It's this combination of like, you know, a bunch of songs that were licensed and, you know, an original theme song for the movie called Revenge of the Nerds that plays over the opening credits. But then they've also they also use like um, Talking Heads Burning Down mm-hmm. the House and, and, and Thriller. And at the end, they use uh, we, we Are, are the, the Champions. Champions and they use them in, you know, these like, you know, iconic, perfect ways. OK, Burning Down the House is a little obvious because they played I didn't a, get a scene it. of a house burning down. But, Origi- yeah, but but um, yeah, it's kind of crazy how. They were able to license these huge hits. That's something they wouldn't be able to do today. It would cost way too much. Yeah, and I mean the We Are the Champions thing, if they'd been able to carry that through as the new theme song to the second one, it probably would have made the movie infinitely more watchable. Um, But no, like – and okay, so there's a poster of Michael Jackson thriller and Larry dresses – or Lamar dresses up like him. Oh, yeah, during the uh, the concert at the end. There's also a – I also like how they have a Devo poster yeah. in, in their uh, in their um, fraternity in the- house, and then during the during that same dance sequence, yeah, Carradine and Edwards are dressed in yellow jumpsuits, and it's great. But yeah, so there's this sequence where they um, very move- hip, very hip, very hip, and and accurate of them to reference Devo as a nerd favorite in 1984. <laughs> You know, I actually think growing up, I confused that scene in Revenge of the Nerds with an actual uh, Devo video. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Yeah, but before that, they there's this other montage because it's the '80s um, where they they do the house. They fix up their this house that. Yeah, and the song is really good. <laughs> and then, but the things they decorate the house with. So there's the Thriller poster, there's the Devo poster, and then there's a Beatles poster. Yeah, that's true. And I found that very interesting. I'm like, so are you saying that in 1984 you were saying that the Beatles were nerdy? Well, I don't know. Were they? I don't know. I have – I mean, were the I never Be- thought of. I never thought about that. <laughs> Exa- I, well, I just saw it this time and I'm like, hey, it's a, it's a We Are the Beatles poster and I'm like – are they supposed to be nerdy? And then I'm like, well, yeah, I'm sure, you know, um, in 1984, Ogre and Ted McGinley don't listen to the Beatles, but you um, know, that's kind of the, the problem with revenge of the nerds is, is the bad guys. It'd be perfect if they were listening to hip hop, but it's just too early. <laughs> um, in 1984, come on. They wouldn't even have been listening to run DMC. Yeah, I don't think those which guys is, ever would have been which was, to Which was like the white person's rap group of the 80s, right? Whose house? Jo- jo- um, <laughs> rap for jocks. That's Run DMC. Yeah, so that's like the – just because I was going at it, um, not really remembering it, I found it really interesting how – the beginning of the movie, the villains, I mean, they're almost comically portrayed at certain points, like when they come up with one of their plans to get rid of the <laughs> the uh, the nerds, they all he, Ted McGinley they, they huddle huddles <laughs> with the girlfriend and I know. Um, it reminded me of Toxic Avenger, like where the bullies are conspiring to throw Melvin the nerd into toxic waste. <laughs> no one was Toxic Avenger. That was eighty four too. The, the same year, yeah. <laughs> And it, and that was like a holdover of portraying nerds as subhumans. <laughs> and I, the thing about the first one um, is that Robert Carradine kind of sucks in a way. Mm-hmm. No, I mean he's funny. He it's is hard funny. to imagine the movie without. Him. No, it doesn't work without him. He's funny and it doesn't work without him. But I think, and I'm getting ahead a little. What doesn't yeah, work think, about the second I one? Think, I don't think I hated him until the second one. Right. You needed Anthony Edwards to sort of normalize him because Anthony Edwards is, you know, uh, Robert Carradine's dad is played by James Cromwell, who credited as Jamie Cromwell, who apparently was in all four of the freaking movies, including the two TV movies. Yeah, he's shameless. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that James Cromwell, of course, went on to when did he get popular? L.A. Confidential. Babe, was it Babe? Like, I don't know. Playing the playing the farmer and Babe. I didn't see Babe, but I well, you know, seen... it was a big it was a big movie, and it came out like what ninety five or something. Yeah, but I think um, he was in the Star Trek one too. He was in First Contact and stuff, and I mean, he sucks in a lot of stuff. He's fine in this, but what I'm saying is that it's it's really funny to see this guy whose career started when he was sixty, when he was you know forty eight, <laughs> right? But he's absurd. Yeah. And Anthony Edwards is never – he is not absurd at the beginning. It's it's actually touching, and I'm sad yeah, that I they would, didn't I, come I back to it. No, yeah, I would say he isn't ever absurd, and you're right. He is the perfect counterpart to Robert Carradine who's like playing 
a little more broad, playing the playing a nerd a, a bit more broadly. Whereas Anthony Edwards is almost just playing like a guy who happens to dress really geeky. Yeah, and it's one of those movies where it never's never sure why they didn't realize why they shouldn't dress like that. But anyway, I mean, because it's not. That's my other. I think I was thinking you know, too hard during the opening too when they walk across campus to their dorm. Why it's didn't he drop him off? <laughs> well, you know, the sense of humor in the movie, um, it's a it's a it's a weird combination of like some really broad, ridiculous stuff, like, you know, ogre throwing people out of windows and stuff, along with like some really poignant slice of life stuff, like from Anthony Edwards and Yeah, stuff. their conversations together, there are like what, three or four of them during the movie. It those are really these touching moments where you really feel the pain of the characters and you you get a real sense of what it was like for them. Yeah, Anthony Anthony Edwards really sells the idea that, you know, like they have been picked on all their lives and, you know, and it sucks cuz like what, you know, when they get there um when they're on their way to school or whatever, it's like, you know, it's not going to be uh it's not going to be like high school or some line like that. But also, I mean, the, yeah, their scenes are really poignant, but I also just find some of their, like, throwaway dialogue as funny as any of Curtis Armstrong's gross one-liners. Like, when they get into, like, when they get into their dorm room and, and he's like, you know, and, and over here we'll have the, the microwave and he's like, wow, do you think, you know, we could put – Anthony Edwards goes like, do you think we could put in, like, a little mini fridge, you know, for snacks and stuff? <laughs> It's just funny to me for some reason. Well, yeah, those because the... that's like because that's because that's a because that's a genuine like nerd moment from real life, right? More like, than more broad stuff. Even though Curtis Armstrong is on American Dad, it's lines like those that have sort of they're all the non-absurd moments of Family Guy and American Dad that Seth MacFarlane picked up is just these these observations about things that are totally removed. Um, yeah, I can't even imagine watching Family Guy or an American Dad episode without having seen this at some point. It's like you wouldn't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so Anthony Edwards, he's the one who's got the regular arc. He meets a girl. He, he kinda, yeah, he, he like grounds the movie in some kind of reality. <laughs> And then they bring him in in the second one to do that exact thing, but not as a main character. Whereas, you know, Carradine, um, the cheerleader falls in love with him. Yeah, the... and by the way, I don't, I don't, I didn't used to hate the cheerleader character, but oh, she's I awful. Re- I really hated her this. Oh, time. I know because I, because I realized like she's just as much of an asshole as Ted McGinley, the bad jock villain. And literally, the only thing that turns her around is, is the fact that is Carradine lays her really well, and immediately she's like, "Oh well, now I'm going with the lamp." All right, if <laughs> what a what a stupid whore. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you've said your dad listens to this. Um, once, once or twice, while. right? Hopefully, my Don't dad worry. doesn't listen to it. Hold on a second. <laughs> yeah. The only. <laughs> freaking reason she turns around on Robert Carradine is because he goes down on her and Ted McGinley never did. That's oh, the yeah, only had, reason. That's the implication had, of his head coming up from her crotch. Yeah. That's oh, the never, Paul never, Verhoeven moment. 
I never right thought about there. that, but you're right. Yeah. 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 So there you go. That's why she turns around. If he hadn't gone down on her, if he just, you know, raped her, she never <laughs> would have come around. But no. She might have she might have reported it if well, except, that. you know, we met the campus police who would have referred it to the Greek Council because if a if a um, fraternity uh, commits a crime, a felony, it's not actually a crime for the police to deal with. It's a crime for the Greek Council to deal with, which is an entirely corrupt and absurdly yeah. – I think that's my other thing is that – I can't tell so you how much better – how much better this movie works when you're a child. And it gets so these things. Yeah, it gets so frustrating because the the dean of the school is a jerk. He, no, I'm sorry, he's a nerd, and the coach yeah. played by John gets, Goodman. And he gets pushed around by Coach John Goodman. No, I'm sorry, no, no, he doesn't get pushed around. He gets assaulted by John Goodman. Yeah, and, and the only and, reason. And like, and Coach John Goodman has like just as much authority as he does. And there's nobody else. There are no nobody ever goes to a class in Revenge of the Nerds too. But besides, well, that, except the computer class where Anthony Edwards magically. I thought that was just the computer lab. Oh yeah, you're right. Any well, but that's as close as we ever get. That's and he magically true. create. And he magically creates an animation by typing. <laughs> Dude knows some basic. You know, come on. Yeah. <laughs> he knows some. Ba- he knows the basic. He knows how to do it. You know, like, um, but yeah, so at the end, that's the other thing in the scene where Bernie Casey and the black guys save the day is that, um, they also save the Dean from being pummeled in public in front of the entire alumni association by the coach. Well, John Goodman, um, yeah, he, like his character doesn't even have a name in this movie. That's mentioned out loud until the credits, and uh, yeah, this was very. Um, when the Coens used him, like what three years after this in Raising Arizona, this movie's got an amazing cast of people who like went on to better things later. Well, <laughs> the second the one part. does too, which is we'll get to that. But the second one is even crazier. But this one, yeah, I mean, it's like, and then you know, poor Robert Carradine. <laughs> yeah, Robert Carradine probably had the worst career of anybody. Yeah, I mean, it's like. Robert Carradine and Mark Hamill should get together and talk about being typecast. Um, yeah. Because, you know, and the fact is, is that the nerd laugh in this, I was reading, he didn't even come up with it. He no. didn't have it on the first day of filming. And then he saw James Cromwell do his nerd laugh. And he's like, well, I'll just base it off that because they're father and son. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Car- this, what was it? It was Carradine. Timothy Busfield is in this, and this is 84, 30-something was 88, so this is, four, you know, Timothy Busfield would have been in his late 20s, early 30s playing a, a college freshman. Yeah. Um, Larry B. Scott went on to space camp, of course. <laughs> you know, I don't even remember that. Uh, I, okay, well, Lamar didn't really do anything. No, but, he was in but, he was um, in Iron Eagle too. Apparently, he yeah. was the guy who had the Ronnie Ray gun line. Um, Anthony Edwards, obviously, ER. Right, um, um, but no, he also had his um, '80s movie career before right. he started losing his hair. Um, of and, course, Ted McGinley was coming off of Happy Days. And I wonder how this movie would play if you'd been the Happy Days viewer. Because he was a nice guy on Happy Days, right? He was the Richie Cunningham replacement. Hmm. And then he does this and he's a total yeah. but then a shit he, heel. Yeah. And then he kind of made – probably you know, made his most fame off of uh, being 
being in the married with children. Um, I think that might do it, but you know, that's a lot of that's a lot of people and some pretty big people too. I mean, John Goodman's role is small, but like he's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just one of those perfectly cast small roles, just like Bernie Casey's. Um, what I noticed about it, of course, was the screenwriters, which is kind of weird. Um, yeah, like the story is by like two pairs of writing partners and then the screenplay is by one of them. One but of the did pairs. you see who they are? Uh, Steve Zacharias and Jeff Buhai wrote the script and the other pair that did the story were uh, Miguel something, yeah. Tejada, Tejada Flores and who, the, the other he guy. Did, who, um, I knew his name because he wrote Screamers. Oh. And he does, yeah, oh, he yeah. does, yeah. Oh, yeah. He does Screamers. He's done a lot of that sort of thriller stuff. Nothing else. Well, I guess he did um, Three for the Road, which is a innocuous 80s comedy. But then the other guy, Tim Metcalf, wrote California. The Brad Pitt is a psychotic serial killer movie. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was really interesting that these guys wrote this script and all I could think was, um, was Revenge of the Nerds sort of a, did they conceive it based upon their experiences before becoming moderately or employable screenwriters? <laughs> I would have to assume so because the uh, the other two guys, the ones that actually have the uh, the screenwriting credit were just like sitcom writers basically. Yeah, and they, I think I saw that they came back for one of the sequels or maybe both of three and four or something. Mm. And the director, of course, um, fizzled quickly. Yeah. Which is too bad. Cause it's, you know, it's an exceptionally well-directed comedy. Yeah. I think the problem is, is that mid eighties comedies, what do we remember? We remember John Hughes, who of course didn't make it right. Like mm. he doesn't have to have made it, but it's not like people are breaking down his door to get him to work again. Well, he's dead. That's John Hughes thing. isn't dead. John isn't Hughes he? is dead? Hold on. I think. So. I think. <laughs> no, let's get up Google. Um, <laughs> oh, dude, he's dead. I feel awful. He died two years ago. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, you know, What's he not? hadn't worked <laughs> in 15 years. Who cares? Um, wow, I'm hearing, I'm hearing your grief in real time. This is great. Oh, he's dead? Really? I knew that he. I knew that he. Um, okay, but to, anyway. to, to concede your point, to concede your point, yes, his career wasn't alive, anyways. Okay, so yeah, so but mid eighties comedies, you know, who were the popular directors back then? Um, Bob Clark for doing Porky. And yeah, Bob Clark. He did Porky's. He did Christmas Story. You'd think the guy would be revered. He did Baby Geniuses too. Um. So I guess what you're saying is uh, doing directing comedies in the 80s wasn't necessarily a career builder. Right. I think you worked through the 80s and then you fizzled. And that's basically what happened to the guy who directed this one. Um, Well, I mean, he did direct V.I. Warshawski, which was for two years a notorious bomb. So I'm sure that hurt him. But no, I don't think anybody really came through the eighties who had started there directing these kinds of comedies and sort of sustained a career in it because the genre died by 90 by 90, 91. Um, but yeah, he, 
Carew, Jeff Carew, is that his Canoe. name? Canoe. He, um, he's able to make a comedy that never feels like a sitcom. It mm-hmm. always moves. It's, yeah, it's, it's so – that's something I appreciated this time around is how um, light on its feet it is, how no scene ever like goes on too long. They just get to the point and then they move on to something else. Yeah, I mean he's able to just go through really quick, take care of everything he needs to. I think he's a little bit too brief at times like the um, – what do you call it? The movie uh, ends with this big huge competition between all the fraternities. Right. I think at times there he gets a little bit too brief, um, but that could just be because they didn't really feel like choreographing more dance More competitions, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, speaking, no, I mean, he does are... <laughs> Yeah, he's really good. Speaking of the ending, too, I mean, um, well, this is... This is related, but I kind of wanted to bring up one more thing about this movie's influence before we move on to the second one because it's probably time. Um, uh, in American Splendor, they like incorporate that Harvey P. Carr comic where he's talking to his nerd friend about how his nerd friend just went and saw Revenge of the Nerds and he loves it. And then like a couple weeks later or whatever, Harvey P. Carr, come, you know, he's like, yeah, I saw that movie, Revenge of the Nerds. You know, those guys aren't you. You know, they're 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 gonna they're like middle class kids in suburbia and they're gonna get good jobs and they're gonna stop being nerds. They're not like they're not living in ethnic ghettos with their grandmothers and they didn't get their computers by sending away box tops. <laughs> I mean, you like, you know, it's uh, Revenge of the Nerds ain't reality, man. It's Hollywood bullshit. <laughs> um which is which which is kind of a which is kind of a diss on the movie, yeah, but the fact that they included it in the movie version kind of, you know, they 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 assumed that enough people would still remember Revenge of the Nerds to to enjoy a scene where like two characters are talking about it back in the eighties when it just came out, which I, which I liked. (laughs) I I wish that I'd been able to go into computer science in 1985 after this movie, if it had inspired me, because it would have really meant something. Um, Yeah. And I think that um, just as a final note, comparing it to something like real genius, which came out the next year and was also, Real genius, there weren't any jocks. Um, it yeah. was all nerds. It's, e- it's even more of a fantasy fulfillment movie than this was. Right. Re- uh, Revenge of the Nerds had some grounding in some kind of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas- Real genius is let's reprogram a satellite to explode popcorn inside a house. Right. And I mean, regardless of whether or not I thought it was overall successful or not, Revenge of the Nerds, at least, it defined um, not really the zeitgeist, but sort of the cultural, like Back to School played on this too, two years later with Rodney Dangerfield. The sort of Revenge of the Nerds, um, which was sort of continuing from Animal House, even though Animal House was supposed to be set in, what, the 50s? Yeah, the view of college, the '80s view of college. <laughs> it would be interesting to see how Animal or Revenge of the Nerds sort of defined the '80s view of college. Yeah, they tried to remake it a few years ago, and then it fizzled out. And you know, I'm curious as to 
in what the a cor- modern remake did would you, be like post everything. Did you read about it? They filmed two weeks of it before they pulled the plug. Oh, wow. And in fact, the reason they pulled the plug is because is the initial university read the script and... They thought it was too raunchy. Which is what happened to this one, too. Yeah, but they let him finish with right. the original. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so I mean, no, Revenge of the Nerds starring Adam Brody from the OC is sitting in, I mean, two weeks of it of rushes are sitting in a vault somewhere and uh, Fox maybe killed it. Maybe they'll release it uh, on the next, on the Blu-ray or something. By the way, I own the Revenge of the Nerds uh, Panty Raid Edition DVD, and it's one of my favorite DVDs ever because they include a pilot that was loosely based on the plot for the original movie, and it was made after the second movie, but before the made-for-TV sequels, and it is like one of the worst things you've ever seen in your entire <laughs> life. But I just love them so much for putting that on there. Uh, anyways, yeah. Do you want to talk about the second one now? Well, we have to. Do I want I to talk about the second one? <laughs> I put, put wrong choice of words. Okay, so uh, let me just say, let me just say, like, even as a kid, I knew this sucked. And, you know, it's like passable if you're watching it on TV and and you're a kid and you really like the first one because, yeah, they do bring back almost everybody. But they um, don't! That's my problem with it. I'm an adult and I don't... <laughs> their cast is so freaking small. That's my okay. problem with this who do, they, who do they bring back? Carradine, Busfield, uh, Lamar, um, The Curtis kid! Armstrong. They bring yeah, back the Curtis 12-year-old. Armstrong. Yeah, and they bring back the 12-year-old except now... He, He's just being three years older makes a huge difference. Yeah, he looks totally different. He looks totally different, and it's like, why are they bringing this teenager? It doesn't even look like him anymore. I know. it's not, He lost the red hair. The joke doesn't work that they've got this kid with them because he doesn't look like a kid anymore. He's obviously a teenager. <laughs> right. And then um, – but it's only supposed to be set a year later, which is – you know, yeah. getting into it, continuity problems with the Revenge of the Nerds movie is a real problem. Um, yeah. But since oh, we are just – star- oh. Sorry, I just wanted to um, – they bring back uh, Cromwell for almost like the exact same amount of screen time at the beginning of the movie. And he's like driving them to the airport just and like he drove all the beginning. It's the most painful scene in the world because he's telling jokes. And yeah. instead of being in the car with just um, – Carradine and Edwards. Edwards is back for this cameo thing, and it's like, what was he shooting that was more important than this? I don't like, know. Johnny Be Good or something. Um, um, but no, and it, so it's Curtis Armstrong's in the car. I think everybody's in the car, right? Right. And, you know, right. They're not responding to any of the dialogue. It's like they're not hearing it, and it's just, you know. I never really noticed that, but yeah, that's true. Oh, and then and then the only one of the jocks that they bring back is Ogre, but it, that's also uh, like, we got to talk about that later. That's oh. really weird because it's like, oh. uh, why did Ogre? Get Anthony Edwards <laughs> was post Top Gun at oh, this yeah. point. Top Gun was eighty six. You're right. <sighs> yeah. So if you're not it's aware am- of this, it's amazing he was willing to do this at all. He must yeah, have had, he must have had a. Yeah. He must have had really fond memories of the movie. Or they do. were like, by the way, we signed you for a sequel in 1985 before the Top oh, yeah. Gun came out. If you're not aware of this, having only seen Anthony Edwards and say Zodiac or um, even ER, 
before he went bald, he was a sort of minor would-be leading man in the 80s, late 80s, um, starting yes. with Gotcha, which was made by Jeff Carew or whatever his name is. Canoe. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, so he shows up for a little bit. But um, yeah, they bring back Ogre, which we'll have to talk about um, in a, in a I, little bit. <laughs> um, but let's start with how the movie opens. Okay. Well, you know, it's you know it's going to be bad when the movie assumes within the first 30 seconds that you can't read. Because it opens with a parody Star Wars scrolling text. But they also add a voiceover of it, oh so God. and that's that's what they think of the intelligence of the of the audience. Wait, wait, wait! We made this mistake um, last episode, everyone, with um, not reading up enough about Godard. Have you read about the guy who wrote this movie? Uh, no. He's currently in prison. What? Steve Marshall's currently in prison for distributing <laughs> child pornography. <laughs> Holy shit. Good. <laughs> he should have been in prison long, long ago. He should have been in prison the day after this came out. But oh, that's, my God. Um, that's, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah, I just brought him up because I'm like, hey, what's this guy doing? No, he's in prison. He's going to be in prison in Arkansas for the next seven and a half years. Okay, so anyway, okay. Um, yeah. yes, so in 1987, we're opening with a a, a Star Wars reference. Um, this is, of course, the same year that Spaceballs opens spoofing Star Wars. So you're, you're already the point where it's okay to spoof it. Now, Mel Brooks only waited four years with Spaceballs. He waited 35 years with Young Frankenstein. So... <laughs> that's already and it opens with a pencil protector and at that moment i remembered everything sank. i hated <laughs> about airplane 2 oh th- yeah i totally i was getting such weird airplane 2 vibes off of this but i mean basically because the it's written by a different person who wrote the original and the person or people who write the sequel trade off of your good memories of not just the characters, but the jokes themselves from the first movie. And they reference the jokes themselves. Like they have Curtis Armstrong say, we've got Bush in a context that makes no sense. He finds weed on an Island. Yeah. Who calls, who calls weed Bush? It's just like this horrible okay. forcing reference of, of jokes from the original, but yeah, it's, it's totally got the airplane too. Syndrome. In addition to being a child pornographer, he was also a staff writer on growing pains. Which might be the same thing. Um, yeah. So, I mean, for Revenge of the Nerds 2, Fox, who has a long history of crapping out sequels, yeah. did this with uh, presumably one of their best franchise possibilities and killed it. Of course, the PG-13 thing we're going to have to get to because this is the first um, – downgraded rating movie that I've seen that I really feel strongly about. Um, you know, what's weird about that is like, I, um, I would, I think they cut as much, I think they had to cut as much stuff out for TV as they did with the first movie, even though it's PG 13, honestly, because, um, actually, yeah, it was <laughs> the cut that they used to play on comedy central was like cut by a, a Baptist or something because they didn't just cut out like, 
Wait, there weren't any boobs. Okay. Wait, well, yeah, there, there was were. the girl was... on the the light the see through thing, which of course yeah, that's right, lighted. that's right. Yeah. There's the wet nighty contest. Um, but besides from that, like the cut that they used to play on Comedy Central cuts out in that opening Star Wars crawl. It ends with the joke, like you know, people are going to this fraternity conference to discuss brotherhood, blah blah blah, and get laid. They censored out the end get laid part. They like blacked it out on Comedy Central. That's how that's how that's how clean they made it. They also they also cut out uh, Curtis Armstrong saying that VIPs stands for very immense penises. They cut out um, where they changed the sign from Hotel Coral Essex to Hot Oral Sex. Um, that would have ruined that whole it, point. It ruins the point of all, all, several scenes, both of those. Like, both of those scenes in the Comedy Central, the old Comedy Central version of this, have, like, really awkward cuts where they have to cut around that. So, what, What's kind of crazy about how neutered this movie yeah. is, is that it's from 1987, and I'm, I'm trying to find the rating. How does IMDb let you find ratings? Um, it's definitely PG-13. I guess. Well, no, I know this is PG-13, but... It came out the same year as Summer School with Mark Harmon and Courtney Thorne Smith, who was in this movie. Um, oh, yeah, which has that, like, ridiculously gory it, Tom It's PG-13. Scene. Yeah. <laughs> Summer School is PG-13, and it doesn't feel at all neutered, possibly because they're not dealing with wet t-shirt contests. But also, Revenge of the Nerds won – Yes, there's a bunch of nudity, but there's also this sort of – the scene where it became – where I realized what I was really missing, um, having only seen it on television uh, before, I guess, the panty raid scene and the the whole video scene. There's some point where they're walking past someplace and somebody calls them a fucking nerd. And the dialogue fits. Whereas in Revenge of the Nerds 2 – it's 1987, and apparently Fox didn't have the stones to go up against the MPAA over how they could use the word fuck in a movie. Yeah, this that movie was doesn't PG- even... I don't, doesn't, think this, I don't think... Nope. <laughs> Nerds 2 doesn't even have, like, the one fuck that you're allowed... Nope, doesn't even have the non-sexual reference of fuck in this movie, yeah. which you could get away with in PG in 1988. So, I mean, this was really neutered. I mean, I assume it got the PG-13 just because of the see-through T-shirts. I know I said that the first movie works well if you're a child, works better, but I think Nerds 2 only works if you're a child. And, and you have commercial breaks. And even and you, had, and you have commercial breaks. And even, and even then, as a kid, I knew it sucked. I knew it sucked. So, okay, so Revenge of the Nerds 2, you've got – where were we? I was about to kick off a whole different thing. Where actually were we on this well, one? We we were talking about you know the opening before and how okay. weird it is that uh, you know Cromwell isn't acknowledging the other nerds in the car and apparently Cromwell's not credited in this movie until after his scenes are done in the opening credits because they run over the um, mm. they start at the car ride. Um, that's just a piece of trivia I read. <laughs> <laughs> you know but, what I hate? In the, you know what I hate in the opening? I hate how um, they uh, um, they arrive they arrive at the at the airport and Ogre is watching them through binoculars. Why would he be? Why would he be doing that? All right, we're gonna do this right now. <laughs> yeah, you. They you, give you have, Ogre yeah. more uh, lines yeah. 
than Orson Welles had in freaking Citizen Kane. (laughs) Donald Gibb sucks. He's always sucked. He will always suck. I I don't know. I haven't seen his commercials. You don't like him playing video games with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Bloodsport? You know what? I quit watching Bloodsport because it sucked so much. Because of him, too, partially. (laughs) But no, that's about the par of an actor he's on. You know, Robert Robert Carradine, Curtis Armstrong, Timothy Busfield, Courtney Thorne Smith from Melrose Place is too good to be in a movie with Donald Gibb. We won't even get (laughs) to the really good people who are in this that are in bit parts and then go on to something or killing their careers with it. They give him so many lines. The freaking movie ends with him becoming a nerd. There's even the possible implication that he becomes smart at the end because he has glasses. That was probably what I hated the most about this movie as a kid. I was like, you can't make somebody a nerd. You can't just put glasses on them. That's the most insulting (laughs) thing I've like the first movie. The integrity of the first. We didn't. Yeah, we didn't talk about this. They would never have done that in the first nerds movie, which tells you totally. I mean, the the main problem is, you know, you mentioned like, you know, you were wondering if the screenwriters based it on their experiences in life. Um, Revenge of the Nerds 2 was unquestionably written not by nerds and by people who were never nerds. (laughs) I I actually thought you were going to say by a pederast. But anyway, well, I um, I was thinking I was thinking of adding, you know, they were too busy molesting children. Um, probably real disappointed that Andrew Cassess had grown up as much as he did. Anyways, wow! Like it's amazing how we went from guitar to this, and it's like we're on a sliding scale down. What are we going to do for next week? Um, oh, if we do, well, uh, we'll get to that at the end. Uh, we're gonna get to a we're gonna get to a murderer <laughs> at the end. There we go. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Um. Donald Gibb becoming a nerd again. The first yeah. movie, we didn't talk about this. The first movie ends with this inspiring speech by Anthony Edwards. And that, that, I'm this, a nerd and I'm pretty proud of it. Right. Yeah. And everybody's a nerd and you see all these nerds come out. And it's, it's, it's embracing because it's basically if you're not a jock, you're, you're one with the nerds. Yeah. This movie ignores that sentiment. In fact, it, it brings back Anthony Edwards in this really weird cameo of I'm and too popular because I'm a, goose. Um, it's, a, it's a dream sequence cameo. Right. Man. It brings him back to remind Robert Carradine of this. And this movie, there are a lot of problems with it. I mean, the, the, the writing... The whole movie is a problem. If Even if they manage to get a couple good lines in, once or twice, right? The problem is, is that if you compare the two movies, and I watched them, you know, back to back, there's no freaking story to Revenge of the Nerds 2. It's not about two guys going to college. It, yeah. This movie is a sequel to Revenge of the Nerds where some of the nerds go to this convention and run into these people that they don't know who hate them because they were alpha betas or whatever. Yeah. Um, so there's no, like, plot. There's no, there's no point to it. No, right. and it's a sitcom. Like you know, you said the first one never feels like a sitcom. Nerds yeah. two feels feels like a sitcom by the time they get stranded on an island. Oh, God. It <laughs> and, feels and like Gilligan's Island. It feels like a bad they, episode of Gilligan's get, Island. They get, they, get, they get stranded on Gilligan's Island and discovered some the, buried military vehicles that allow them to leave. 
the one thing I did like about it, and I and assume, they have and they have enough time to change into military right. fatigues. But the, the thing I liked about it was is that in 1987 these they were comfortable enough to mock um, Vietnam with the nerds, and I, I assume that Platoon coming out the same year or the next year sort of ruined that for a while. But we've talked about this before that people weren't really willing to mock Vietnam for X amount of time, and you're not allowed to mock Vietnam now. You should watch Chain- Texas Chainsaw Two sometime. But they, yeah, they mock Vietnam. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they they have like a hitchhiker equivalent who's a Nam vet. Anyways, um, like yeah. yeah, the the other the other really sitcommy thing is when they show up at the fucking hotel Coral Essex, and the manager oh. is like this. You know, hilarious Latina. Stereo. That was a good line, though. That was a great line. That was a great line for Tim- poor Timothy Busfield, who I, I think this. the next year was on Thirty Something when he says, "Hablo español," and she's like, "Yes, oh, yeah. you do speak Spanish." <laughs> yeah. Okay, and something else good, that okay, would be great. Okay, there's three good lines in the movie. Even a child molester is right twice a day or something. Um. um yeah, you know what else? You know what else? I hated at that ending where they're christening Donald Gibb as a Ugh. new nerd. Um, why is the Asian guy that they met at the hotel there with them, presumably back at Adams College? Why did he come back? I didn't with notice them? he was back with them because I was. Well, that's I was the thing. Zoning. Like I'm not even. I can't even tell at the end well, if they're supposed to be at the hotel in, in right. Florida or or back there because nope. Anthony Edwards is there. Well, but guy that they met at the hotel is there too why would they be there together hold on a second hold on um you're referring to the guy who rapped better than the black guy right um i'm referring to the asian guy who they do oh james hong they do the karate kid parody i would assume that's because um booger booger adopts him oh i thought that they brought back um barry sobel that's another amazing part of this movie. For some reason, they have um, Larry B. Scott rap again. And Larry B. Scott's whole gayness is really toned down in this. There's the whole thing where he's making the uh, Sandman with the, the dick. But yeah. other than that, he's pretty toned down. Like In the yeah, first movie, it's implied that he is actively <laughs> having a yeah, fruitful... Homosexual. He brings, man, he, yeah. he brings his mandate to the party. Yeah. Right. In this one, he's very toned down. In fact, I think at one point he's like, ooh, those girls are talking to us. Um, but then there's this scene where he raps. And it was really yeah. funny because he's like rapping against Prop uh, well, 18. Ag- ag- again, the, the, uh, the Airplane 2 syndrome of like trying to repeat the successful scenes from the first movie. That, that you know, the Lambda Lambda the famous Lambda rap at the end of Revenge of the Nerds is at the climax. In Nerds 2, it happens halfway through. And in this, they bring they adopt a nerd. Okay, yeah. so, real quick. In the first movie, the whole action gets kicked off because the Alpha Betas um, burn down their house, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have yeah. the freaking movie. In this one, the movie exists because um, the hotel manager, the acting hotel manager, because the actual hotel manager is on vacation, is a former Alpha Beta who doesn't like nerds, so he kicks out the nerds. He it's Ed Lauder. He's like a real actor. <laughs> it's Ed Lauder who's a real actor, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. Okay. But he also fires his nerd employee. It's not 
explained why the guy was there in the first place. But his nerd employee is played by this guy named Barry Sobel, who's a stand-up comic. And he sort of gets adopted by Robert Carradine and the nerds. And he raps with Larry B. Scott. And so it's yeah. 1987 <laughs> and the white guy's rapping better than the black guy. And I looked him up and Barry Sobel apparently sort of did a Beastie Boys thing. And in fact, he was on a HBO hip hop comedy special where he's the only white guy. And, you know, That's interesting. Yeah. But I mean, like when you listen <laughs> to them rap, this guy's a lot better than the black guy. And I'm just well, kind of like, well, the rap is pretty awful. It's awful, but he's still better. Okay. Yeah. As his, a rapper, his, he's better. His character, his character, by the way, I mean, they, should have written his character into the movie more because he's like the he's he's almost like the Anthony Edwards of the first one. He's the only nerd who's actually like grounded in some kind of realistic nerdiness. One has to wonder because did you read about the girlfriend not coming back? Um no, why didn't she? Because in the original script she cheated on Lewis. She cheated on Robert Carradine. They changed it so she didn't, but she still didn't want to come back. So I would assume, and especially since it came out in 87, so the zeitgeist was over. I mean, by 1987, shit, would Revenge of the Nerds still have been on HBO? I mean... I don't know. Right. So I, I think that they had a lot of script problems because, you know, Steve Marshall was too busy with child pornography <laughs> but and, or, or working on Growing Pains, which is, like I said, the same thing. Um, but yeah, so... Well, that's odd because, like, Courtney Thorne Smith's character is like a big part of the movie. Exactly. Yeah. So and you know what's you know what feels weird this time around is I used to hate Courtney Thorne Smith's character. Now I'm like, wow, she's a really nice person, isn't she? Because she really likes <laughs> Lewis com- compared to compared to the girl in the first movie. And she's really yeah. smart. The first movie doesn't have any like blonde bimbo looking smart girls. It has Melanie right, Mayrick who, who are secretly smart. Right. right. Melanie, poor Melanie Mayrick in the first one's like, got, you know, they were like, here, let's put some ugly makeup on you. And in this one, it's Courtney Thorne Smith sits around and talks to Robert Carradine about stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Cellular or something. I'm not smart enough. I'm not as smart yeah. as Courtney Thorne Smith. But, um, are you smarter than a child molester? Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I'm smarter than a growing page writer. Okay. Um, where were we? We keep getting off on tangents. We're before Ed Lauder being in the movie. Yeah, you're, uh, uh, the the rap that they repeat. They before the rap. Um, Donald Gibb. Um, I'm trying to find something to say about the movie that isn't. Well, you know, here's here's a point I want to make. Um. The, the the difference between the two could almost be summarized by at the end of the movie, like the lead jock who's just some guy they couldn't get, they couldn't get. It's get not some guy. guy. We'll get back to that. But anyway. Okay, sorry, I didn't know who it was. But um, you know, the nerds show up, and the the lead bad guy jock goes like, "Oh, what are you going to do, Lewis? You going to make another speech?" And and then Robert oh, yeah. Carradine is like, "No, I guess there's nothing I can do." And then he punches him out. He like decks this jock somehow, and everybody cheers, and like that's like the refutation to the original. It's like this totally anti-intellectual counterpoint to the entire first movie. Like, no, this one, this the sequel isn't going to end with another speech for nerd acceptance. It's just going to end with like, you know, okay. like deck the bad guy. And Let's the- not forget, of course, that the bad guys in this one 
they don't commit assault once. They don't frame people. They don't do that. They do it multiple times. Yeah. They the do, amount of felony. I, way more illegal than. That was what I was expecting at the end of this movie before he punches him out to be like, no, but the cops want to talk to you. Just the amount of crimes perpetrated in this movie. It's just. It's absurd at a certain point, of course. Um, yeah, were the, were, the, were the Alpha Betas just going to let them starve to death on that island? Well, sure, they were going to kill them. I mean, hey. And then oh, yeah. it's like there was something cut from the end because you were supposed to – there was supposed to be some suggestion that Ogre might save the bad guys, but then he didn't. Um, mm-hmm. I guess this is where I'll, I'll mention the cast because you, you, you just said that the bad yeah, guy the- in this one – it's Bradley that, Whitford. Who is... Bradley the, Whitford from the West Wing, Studio 60, sort of oh. Aaron Sorkin stand-in. Of course, Timothy Busfield is in it too, who is in the West Wing and Studio 60. But, I mean, it's just like Bradley Whitford sort of fumbled through um, the 80s. He was the bad guy in this. He was the bad guy in Adventures in Babysitting and some other stuff. Um, Ed Lauder. Yeah. Ed Lauder in this movie giving a terrible performance. <laughs> I yeah. mean, worse than Hector Elizondo in Private Resort, terrible, or whatever that movie was called. Um, Courtney Thorne Smith, I'm not going to go far to defend, but I will say she was better in summer school than she was in this. Um, yeah, it's just, you're just kind of like, wow, Ed Lauder was really, really doing this. And Courtney Thorne Smith really got a job after this. So I think that, um, well, you gotta, you gotta start somewhere. Um, okay. One more idiotics. Every, everything that happens in this movie is some idiotic sitcom situation, but I've always hated the scene where like, like the nerds become so stupid in this movie because the screenwriters are child molesting idiots. I mean, like when they, get fooled into thinking that the alpha betas are actually seminal indians sacrificing someone but 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 timothy busfield is still strong enough i mean strong excuse me smart enough to try speaking indian to them and that's how he knows that they're not the real deal what the fuck you know this is retarded revenge of the nerds 2 reminds me of police academy 2 Police Academy 1 wasn't very good, but damn if Police Academy 2 wasn't awful. And that's what this reminds me of. Um, but it's got it, you know, five years on Police Academy 2, so there's no excuse. But Joe Roth sucks. The guy who directed this. Yeah. He, and he has some very sitcom moments in this, too. So it's not just like I'm saying Joe Roth sucks because he directed America's Sweethearts or because he ran some shitty movie studio. But no, I mean, Joe Roth, you know, the direction in this is, it's really. Hacky. It's hacky, but it's not even passable as a comedy. It's not even. Probably the worst. What do you think's his worst choice? I think it's, I think it's when um, the, uh, <laughs> the, um, the new nerd character who works at the hotel gets thrown out by Ed Lauder and he like slides across the floor on some on some dolly or something. What about when he gets yeah, well. Also when, he, also when later. he uses, also when he uses also when he uses uh sped up fast motion for when everybody runs out of the room to go to the wet nighty contest. 
I always hated that too. Yeah. Um, I'm actually trying to think if there's any a single moment in the movie that I would say was well or even mediocrely executed. Um, it seems like they're trying to do a Anthony Edwards in Dream as Obi-Wan Kenobi thing, but they really don't go far enough with yeah. it. So that fails. Um, I mean, it's just... Oh, we haven't gotten to the PG-13 thing, really. Um, so Revenge of the Nerds 2 is PG-13. And Revenge of the Nerds, besides the sort of panty raid sequence and the subsequent um, Peeping Tom sequence, it doesn't. it's not chock full of nudity. Right, it's not like right. they have boobs every ten minutes or whatever the mall rats rule is. Right, right. Um, Revenge of the Nerds too, though it opens with this this scene of them, well, the sequence of them going down the beach in Fort Lauderdale, where all the girls are waving at them in bikinis. Yeah, and it's like they were trying to do that. Well, there's the wet T-shirt thing too, but. I mean, at that point, you're sort of like the brain is starting to shut off. <laughs> and then at yeah. that point, you you lose all of that for the majority of the movie until Lewis, until Robert Carradine's dream sequence where there's a see-through nighty that probably got cut on TV. Yeah, it did. Um, so it's kind of like they're trying to be like, well, hey, there might be nudity in this movie, but there's not going <laughs> to be. You know what else got cut for TV? Um uh, was finding weed on the island. So when you're watching it on TV, like suddenly Ogre is just chilling with the nerds and you don't know what broke down those barriers between them. That's like almost the most touching scene in the movie where they're sitting there like, can we give it some is. to Ogre? And they're like, and it's I al- guess so. and it's also one- <laughs> And it's also one of the few funny lines, like one of the three or four, when Ogre goes, uh, what if C-A-T spells dog? <laughs> Doing his stoned rambling. Yeah. Um... Uh. Um, well, one more thing I wanted to mention about the movie, and I would almost count, I would almost count it as like a, as a positive point, but it's not really like memorable, but it's just interesting. Um, you know, they went from having Devo posters in the frat house from the first movie to actually having Devo do the music in this one. And, um, yeah, probably not one of Mark Mothersbaugh's best scores probably no. doesn't really doesn't really compare to uh, those Wes Anderson movies. You don't think he puts it on and he's like, Hey, I did the score for Revenge of the Nerds too. <laughs> um, no. Speaking about the pot, just as a, yeah. as a quick thing, the first movie has like some of the best pot scenes in a movie ever, like most realistic depiction of Oh yeah, yeah. people getting stoned to this one where they're forcing it. But, I mean, it's not exceptional, whereas in the first one, it was kind of like, that's that's really well done. In this one, yeah. it's kind of like, you know, the people it's who wrote there, the scene yeah. were more used to a very special yeah. episode of Growing Pains. Um, and the soundtrack, other than Mother's Bra, there's no good... It's not like the first one. There's no Queen no. in this. There's no they Michael make- Jackson. 
Um, there's, there's a bunch of innocuous pop songs in the background, and then they make a big freaking deal out of this 38 special song that plays in the beginning when they're driving through Fort Lauderdale, and then they play it at the end, and they play clips from the movie like, oh, remember when that happened? Yeah, that was great. Uh, 38 special was Brian Adams' band. Was it? Apparently. Mm. I didn't even know that Brian Adams had a band. Anyway, kind of like, so... Sounded like some southern rock thing. But Canadian. I don't know. Um, okay. So, is there anything else that needs to be said about <sighs> Nerds 2? Let me look real quick, but I think we've pretty much summed up anything nasty. We didn't talk... Oh! My last Christopher Nolan reference. Okay, what is it? The Nerds get a... Uh, a waterlogged, whatever the hell that thing was. Right, they get a amphibious assault vehicle, and it crashes through, just like the Batmobile. I mean, yeah. and thought of that. I was wondering how you're going to pull that out, but there yeah, it is. Yeah, there it is. But other than that, I think I'm pretty much done with Nerds in Paradise. Me too. You, you've made my day by finding out that the guy who wrote this movie is in jail. That's really put a smile on my face. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You'd already have been smiling if I just mentioned he wrote Growing Pains. But no, we, we took yeah. it past that. Good, good. That, that fucker. <laughs> um, so, many childhood so many childhoods destroyed that guy by this and what he did in real life. Anyways, so, um, so yeah, uh, last episode we talked about Jean-Luc Godard, who's, who's a Jew hater. This episode we talked about the guy who wrote this movie. He's a child molester. And uh, next, next episode we're going to be talking about John Landis, who, who's a murderer. That's, aw that's awesome. That's a hat trick. Uh, that means, of course, we, we won't be – we're not doing a Landis movie entirely, but, you know, what else could we be talking about? We're going to be watching Twilight Zone, the movie. And Where he just, killed the person. Where he killed his star, yeah. And it's it's only one movie, but it, you know, really it's like four little mini-movies. And they also happen to be about half good, half bad. I think, you know, Spielberg and Landis's suck, and then Dante and George Miller's are cool. So it is, we got the half and half thing going. And uh, that'll be fun. So, uh, well, this has been great. I've been wanting to do this Nerds episode for a long time. I'm glad we finally did this. Now, we can't do three and four, though, right? Because they're both... No, we'll never They're do. both good. That's... Yeah, they're they're both they're both too good. Yeah. So, uh, Twilight's on the movie next episode, and uh, for an Alan Smithy podcast, I have been Matt, and I've been Andrew, and thanks for listening. In the place, here's a story about some guys that are bound for glory. I'll get right down to the nitty gritty. The triple L crew is gonna rock this city. I'm the L A M, the A and the R, the man on the mic that they call Lamar. And there's a couple of things that I'd like to say about Prop 15. It's not okay. Now I'm no jock, no football hero, but that don't mean I'm an absolute zero. And all of that stuff Just because we can't do a hundred push-ups Don't judge by looks like a book by its cover You may miss a friend You may miss a lover on the mic. I didn't come to preach, but there's some folks out there that need to be reached. You gotta open your mind so you can set it free. And the man that help you 
do it. It's the mighty lip C. C. The mighty lip C. C. Hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Best of Alan Smithy podcasts. This is Marcy Fenner. Good evening.